welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Thank you, Dorothy. It's good to have a fan. And uh, bless you for being here today. This is the Sunday in the calendar year that preachers love to hate because of the time change situation and the loss of an hour and all the rest of that. But boy, first hour was here strong and so are you. So God bless you for that. Let me say a prayer and then we'll plunge in. Father, we thank you for... um, We thank you for your word, for its wisdom, for its, um, for the strength and power there is in it, and I pray that you'll help me to do it justice as I teach it, and you'll help us all to receive it as we hear it, and um, preacher and congregation alike, we pray that you'll help us by your spirit to embrace the truth of your word and practice it in our lives. Give us help in that way, we pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. So you're in this series um, that's been called It's All About Jesus, and I want to show you today how some of the most profound and transforming things Jesus said actually came in the context of dispute or debate or, if you like, argument. Jesus in the Gospels is often found in um, fairly animated exchanges with people who, tr- who are sometimes trying to trip him up, sometimes trying to expose him, sometimes trying to pigeonhole uh, him in some way to their own advantage, and that's the case today. And we're going to look at that and learn from this um, piece of the Gospel of Matthew arguing with Jesus about the afterlife. Now, before we get to the text, I just want to say, I want to make the point that actually only a handful of people asked Jesus provocative questions for which they actually wanted an answer. And most of the time when they got the answer, everybody was left stone-cold silent. But it's important to recall, Jesus' opponents were often, often working harder to make a point with a question than they were seeking information. And so the Pharisees posed questions mainly designed to discredit Jesus in some way. The Sadducees about whom we'll learn more in a moment, uh, did the very same thing from their point of view. But whatever the agenda that drove the question, in every case, Jesus offered an answer so brilliant, so unexpected, so amazing, that it silenced his antagonists and caused onlookers and eavesdroppers to gasp. It's, it's It's... It's a fascinating thing how frequently this occurs in the Gospels. Nearly every exchange concludes with some version of, when they heard his answer, they were astonished at his teaching. And we're going to see that again today. Today we look at an argument between Jesus and the Sadducees about the afterlife. And we need here to pause and say we, we live in a world that is skeptical about whether there's anything certain to say about the afterlife. And yet, the question of what comes after death is in, inevitable. Our hearts cannot deny it. And Jesus' answer to the question that, that he was posed was so clear, so compelling, that it turned ultimately turned one of his greatest opponents, Saul of Tarsus, Uh, into one of his greatest allies, maybe his greatest ally, Paul, later the apostle, who famously wrote and summed up the argument in, in these words. 
To live is Christ, and finish it with me. To die is gain. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, and we'll read verses 23 to 33. Matthew 22, 23 to 33. Here's the scene, here's the dialogue, here's the argument. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, which is to say no afterlife, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring to carry on his name. Now, here's the scenario they present. There were seven brothers. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. I'm thinking by the fifth or sixth brother, I'm starting to feel a little... Um, anxious about things. Um, Same thing happened in each case, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, and you need to hear these words, feel these words, read these words with a kind of sneering, snarky, antagonistic attitude in your spirit. In the afterlife, in this afterlife that you propose, that you believe in, whose wife, Jesus, will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her. Jesus wastes no time and is very succinct in his response. He replies, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. So the Sadducees are not only getting an unexpected answer to their question, they're getting an F on their understanding of the scriptures. And we'll talk more about that. It ends this way, at the resurrection, people will neither, Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, in a very specific way. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And here it is, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I'm not so sure you and I are astonished by his teaching, which means that we need to look a little more deeply into what's happening here and what Jesus is actually saying. And I'm going to do it along three lines. Great classic preacher's um, outline here. We're going to look at Jesus' stern rebuke of the Sadducees, his remarkable argument, and his amazing promise. Okay, those are the three hooks on which we'll hang our thoughts. Jesus' stern rebuke, his remarkable argument, and his amazing promise. So first, the the rebuke, Jesus' stern rebuke. And in order to get to the rebuke and learn from this exchange, we we need to take a few moments to understand who the Sadducees were, who they were, what they were about, what their motives were for taking Jesus on in the way that they do. It's maybe an oversimplification, though probably not by much, to say that the Sadducees were something like the opposite of the Pharisees. So let's let's sort of pose those two groups that you often meet in the Gospels of the New Testament against each other for just a few minutes. The Pharisees were the much more religious, the pious religionists, They were the much more religious group than the Sadducees, but just as committed, 
just as devoted to protecting their status, their power, the, their position as the Sadducees were. Everybody's very concerned about where, what box they're in in this storyline. The Pharisees were legalists who piled up rules one on top of another, drawing from the Pentateuch and all of the rabbinic reflections on it. And they believed that man's duty to God was to prove his fitness for heaven by living in conformity with those rules. That's a fair summary of the Pharisees. So we'll call the Pharisees moralistic fundamentalists or the like. The Sadducees, by contrast, were an aristocratic, educated Priestly, but probably not in the sense that you think of that word priestly. They were really more political agents, temple officials, who, uh, who were, again, more political than they were religious. They had money, they had power, which tends to cause people to focus on the here and now much more than the hereafter. So their aim was to discredit Jesus. Their aim was to discredit Jesus by forcing him to admit his sympathies with the Pharisees by getting him to profess his belief in one of their beliefs, which is in this case the afterlife. He was trying to position, they were trying to position Jesus. Again, the Sadducees were adherents of a kind of stripped down version of the Jewish faith that focused on preserving the social and political status quo in which they were thriving, in which they were often prominent and sometimes preeminent. They didn't believe in a coming kingdom, a Messiah, ultimate redemption, resurrection, or future judgment, any, any of the things that we think of about happening after this life. They focused on the present and therefore believed man's duty to God was to keep the civic peace of which they were the custodians. Their bottom line, their bottom line was not allegiance to the God to whom all will one day give an account. It was to preserve and protect their power and prosperity, so we'll call the Sadducees relativistic humanists or something like that, devoted, very much devoted to temporal interests and much too sophisticated to embrace the personal God Jesus often referred to as Abba, Father. But don't get lost in the details, the comparison and the contrast. The real point here is that these groups, both of them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were antagonists against one against the other, pitted one against the other. Yet they shared this common desire to discredit anyone, in this case Jesus, whose popularity threatened their position, their power base. If you think about contemporary politics, there's really not much new under the sun. And this is what's at the root of many of the arguments with Jesus, this desire to marginalize him by exposing his belief in an adversary's disagreeable doctrine. So the Sadducees choose the topic of the afterlife by constructing this, this red herring, this bogus story, this wildly exaggerated example around what was known as leveret marriage. And we're not going to get all technical here, but that's the phrase, leveret marriage. So we have to answer the question, what is that? What is leveret marriage referring to? And the answer is this. It was the merciful, it was the incredibly gracious provision for widows instituted by Moses in Deuteronomy 25 that called a male family member to marry the widow of his deceased brother. So the Sadducees have taken a very legitimate statement of the of the Old Testament, but they have very much 
worked it and massaged it and twisted it to their particular advantages. They try to take Jesus on here. And in fact, they didn't care very much at all about leveret marriage. They, they just want, they seized an opportunity uh, to expose Jesus, to show that he's not to be taken seriously by goading him to offer an answer to their highly speculative question, who would be married to whom in the afterlife if a woman was widowed and remarried seven times in this life? If Jesus gave any answer that revealed his belief in the afterlife, the Sadducees would say, there it is, you're in league with the Pharisees. And if he said there is no afterlife, like they believe, he'd, ex he'd be exposed as a fraud to those who were beginning to believe that he was in fact the long foreseen Messiah, the king of the kingdom, which is to come, the eternal kingdom. Now, before we get to the argument and the promise, I just want to point out how many things are actually going on in this short exchange. I want to point out the brilliance of Jesus in clarifying that he was neither a Sadducee nor a Pharisee, nor did he split the difference down the middle. Maybe you know the old, uh, the old maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. If the Sadducees could show that Jesus was opposed to the Pharisees, then he might become useful to the Sadducees and their cause. If the Pharisees could show that Jesus was opposed to the Sadducees, then he might become useful to the Pharisees and their cause. And if together the two groups could somehow discredit him, they might both feel less threatened by his popularity, his growing popularity with the people. But Jesus will have none of it. He rejects all the categories. And he simply and very emphatically says, you are in error. You're, you're just wrong. Your premise is wrong. Your clever storyline designed to entrap me, pigeonhole me, is just flat wrong. I want to learn from this. You and I need to learn from this because we often go astray on just this question. Which side are you on? Which side do you take? And when we fail to understand the gospel, to read the scriptures wisely, we hear those parts of the Bible that seem to validate the beliefs that we have brought to our faith and we conclude Christianity is like the things I like. How cool is that? It's about the things I believe. We see the Bible, for instance, as pro-family, protective of private property, honoring of hard work. And we think, yeah, God is a conservative just like me. But the Bible also has a very great deal to say about justice Concern for the poor, the obligations of the community to those in great need. And we think, yeah, God is a liberal like me. But what we need to understand is that the gospel is not the servant of any human ideology. Again, Jesus is answering a very specific question at the, about the afterlife. We'll get to that momentarily. But he's, he's making a very sweeping, he's establishing a very sweeping way of understanding reality the reality that belongs, all of it, every inch of it, to God. The gospel is not the servant of any human ideology. It's not exactly conservative or liberal in any of the ways we use those terms, nor is it somewhere in the middle, and it reserves the right. Here's the, here's the deep point on this. It reserves the right to critique all our narratives, all our 
preferred positions. All of our thinking and us. The gospel critiques all of us. So one of the main things we learn from these heated exchanges, these arguments with Jesus, is that the gospel and the God of the Bible defy our human categories, push against them, actually, in many ways. The Bible, the biblical God, is in fact more conservative than the conservative God of Pharisaism because his bar of righteousness is so high that only he can meet it. And the biblical God is, in fact, more liberal than the liberal God of Sadduceeism because he didn't come to protect a preferred social order. He came to make all things new. He came to resurrect the whole mess. He, he, he came to create the eternity that God had in mind before the Garden of Eden. His agenda is much bigger than any human agenda. So, do you see, the Pharisees listened to Jesus and thought they heard a Sadducee. And the Sadducees listened to Jesus and thought they heard a Pharisee. But Jesus said, I'm neither. Don't do that. Nor am I halfway in between. I am beyond category, party, ideology, or creed. And until we see Jesus being attacked by both groups, which he is, rebuking both groups, which he does, we might get caught up in the game of looking for the, way, for the ways Jesus likes the things we like rather than discovering all the ways we need to submit and surrender to the things he likes, whatever they may be. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. So that's the stern rebuke, and it's quite a sweeping one. Now, let's get more specifically to the exchange itself and Jesus' very remarkable argument, where he points out the Sadducees' dual mistakes. He does this in verse 29, misreading the Scriptures, underestimating the power of God. You really don't want to fail that pop quiz, but they did on both points. Jesus brilliantly, brilliantly argues for the afterlife in the most unexpected way by quoting the text to which even the secular Sadducees subscribed. This is their birthright views. While they didn't hold to all of the, all of the conservative religious perspectives of the believing Jewish community. They were Jews. Oh, yes, they were. And so Jesus um, quotes Exodus 3 and verse 6, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, present tense, I am the God of my people. That's his argument, which doesn't at first seem like one, so let me show you how it works. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham, for as long as he lived, I was his God. He says, I am his God. Though he lived long ago, I am his God. I am always and forever the God of Abraham. Though long dead, I am and always will be, present tense, Abraham's God. Now, friends, that's not just wordplay. That's not just religious sentimental talk. You need to see, I need to see, we need to understand what it means. When God uses this language, when he very carefully and specifically and purposefully chooses the present tense and personal pronouns so deliberately, it means something. It means powerful things. When God appeared to Moses and spoke to him, he was renewing the promise he had made to Abraham and the others. I will be your God. That's my plan. 
I want a deep, personal, intimate covenant relationship with you and all my people. So intimate and personal that we will use personal, present tense, possessive pronouns with each other. Now, you're thinking, oh gosh, freshman grammar class, I can't cope. And you don't need to cope. You just need to listen for a few more minutes. Think for a moment about what it means for us to speak of each other possessively in honorable and right ways. Even if you don't know anything about me, if you heard me talking about my Karen, what would you conclude? Not just that we were really cute way back when. (laughs) You would likely uh, understand that Karen is my wife. And that's how husbands and wives refer to each other. She is my wife. I am her husband. We never talk about another human being in the language of ownership unless there's this deep, voluntary, self-giving commitment in place. A commitment so strong and transcendent that it can bear the weight of such intimate language. So notice how God identifies himself with his children. He's quite content to be identified as Abraham's God. Not in that pivotal cornerstone text I quoted, not not as Yahweh or Jehovah, his technical legal uh, names. In, In the present tense relationship of family, this is how it is. This is the way it works. We speak like this every day. Here are several of my grandkids. In about a month, we'll have 10 in all. Three kids, 10 grandkids. And uh, I, I delight it to speak of my Nina, my Luke, or my Jack. And when I don't delight to do that, I speak of them as Karen's grandchildren. <laughs> but for the most part, we happily own each other with these loving, personal, possessive pronouns, right? That's how we speak. So listen carefully, listen very carefully, listen with your heart. When God says, what God says and what Jesus takes care to point out is that when God enters into a relationship with someone, with you, with me, that relationship never goes into the past tense. Not with Abraham, not with Isaac, not with Jacob. If you, have, if you love and honor and have submitted your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, never in the, print, in the past tense. Now, this gets kind of heavy, so forgive me for this. But you know, you know intuitively, you know instinctually, you you know in your gut that the most tragic moment in a family comes when we have to speak of a family member in the past tense. He was my dad. She was my mom. And so on. When we love the members of our family, we don't ever want those relationships to go into the past tense. But being mortal, eventually all family members cease to exist to us in the present tense. And again, I'm sorry, but it is a hard truth we all know very well. One member of every family will likely live to speak of everyone else in that family in the past tense. There is this sort of gnawing, nagging reality. You may not even be conscious of it at the Thanksgiving table, but at some level it is in your spirit to understand when you sit around a table of the the beloved for a special meal, if there's six or eight or ten or twelve or whatever number of you, one of you is likely to be the last man or woman standing and who will have to refer to everyone else in the past tense. 
Well, that's the sad news. Here's the good news. What if you're in God's family? What if you're in God's family? What if you and God enter into a deep, voluntary, self-giving commitment to one another? What does that mean? Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Verse 32, God can never say, God can never say, I was Abraham's God. He can only say, I am his God. And that's not just wordsmithing. That is the deepest of realities. I am his God in the never-ending present tense of eternity. What Jesus says to the Sadducees is, when God puts his love on you, the relationship that is formed can never go into the past tense. There it is. That's his, that's his argument. God can never lose what is precious to him. We can and do, temporarily at least, but God cannot. And that's the argument. His love cannot be less than ours. It must be more. And one of the ways in which it is more is it's always present tense, always and forever. If you and I cannot bear to have our most precious relationships go into the past tense, how could God? And the answer is none of God's prized, precious Personal relationships ever go into the past tense. That's the argument, and it's brilliant, it's unanticipated, it's compelling, it shut down the conversation, but there's more. What Jesus says is, as the object of God's love, we become ever and always present, eternally and everlastingly present. To tap into the old Pinocchio story, myth, when God puts his love on you, you become permanent. You become real. The love of God makes us permanent and real. You know the Pinocchio story, right? The quest of the puppet is, if I can get someone real to love me, it will make me real. I'll be truly alive, really alive, forever alive. There it is. No one, no one speaks of this Longing more insightfully than C.S. Lewis, he writes in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so, and so, philosophers, in spite of all of our ambivalence and cynicism and jadedness about these things in our culture, philosophers, poets, and songwriters have made clear for a long time that this is the human dilemma. We, we're aware that our existence is fleeting and ephemeral, that we're not really permanent, that we're not really real. But if someone real loved us, put his or her love on us, we could become real. We would become permanent. And that's Jesus' argument. The love of God grants us forgiveness of sins. Oh, yes, it does. It had to, and it's the best of all truths. But it also turns us into something else, something more. Like the angels in heaven, Jesus says in verse 30. How so? Just this. We become forever people. More lasting, more real than anything in this world. Now, I think it's worth noting, this is not the argument about the afterlife, its reality and existence. This is not the argument the old hellfire preachers made. They said, you know there's an afterlife. You know there's an afterlife. And without a relationship with God, it's not going to be a happy afterlife. So repent and believe. 
Turn or burn. That was sort of the old school approach. And there's nothing technically wrong with that argument, but I think it's fascinating that Jesus uses nothing like it. Jesus says, get in a relationship with God and then you'll know there is an afterlife. And when his love, when his love suffuses your heart and mind, you'll know, you'll know nothing, nothing can interrupt it. Nothing can separate you from it. You'll know this experientially at the deepest level as the Spirit confirms it within your spirit, but you'll also know it logically because if God loves us at least as much as we love the members of our own family, then he doesn't want a relationship to ever become past tense. And what God wants, in the end, God gets. That's what it means to be the sovereign Lord of the universe. God cannot, he will not be the God of the dead, but of the living. This is the remarkable, amazing argument for the afterlife that Jesus gives. Finally, though, he makes, and mercifully, he makes this amazing promise. And again, he uses the Sadducees' own words, their example, to make his point. He says, in effect, you want to talk about marriage? Okay, let's talk. But let me first point out that your problem is you do not understand the power of God. Now, when you read the text, okay, they don't understand the power of God, but what does that mean in the context in which it's used? So let's think about it. What Jesus is saying is you've reduced God and what he's about in this crazy uh, death and marriage and and remarriage storyline that you've leveraged, leveraged, the grace of leveret marriage to illustrate, you've reduced God and what he's about to a thimbleful, <laughs> a thimbleful of the thing it actually is. In this life, people marry and are given in marriage. And it's often a beautiful thing, a relationship that God intends, we're told in the book of Ephesians, to illustrate his commitment to his bride, the church. But in the life to come, Jesus says, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage is fundamental to this life, but not to the life which is to come, not in the way your example suggests. Now, when people hear this, they're often disappointed. They think, so in in heaven we'll just, just be friends? Like to the people we were married to for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 or more years? Some will say it would be an improvement to just be friends in heaven, but (laughs) even with our cultural ambivalence toward marriage, and in many cases difficult experiences of marriage, we intuit, all of us intuit, and understand that marriage is or can be, should be the most important relationship of all. So why wouldn't it matter in heaven? Well, here's Jesus' answer. When he says to the Sadducees, you underestimate the power of God, he's He's appealing to the simple principle of not less, but more. Not less, but more. Much more. He is saying, you have no idea of the magnitude of the transformation of life that is to come. In in the afterlife, we'll not experience love and relationship that is less intense, less satisfying, less meaningful than our experience of it in this life, the best version of this life. Far, far from it. In the life to come, the love we'll experience with God and with all the other lovers of God is going to make the greatest life, love in this life 
seem like nothing by comparison. It will eclipse it in every way and on an order of magnitude that is unimaginable. Love here and now is a dewdrop compared to the river of love we'll experience there and then. Jesus says the afterlife is a world of love so overwhelmingly wonderful that it will not be less than what we experienced in this life, however good it may have been in this life. The very best experiences of love in this life will not compare to the love that is to come. Or as Lewis again put it, to be at last summoned inside, inside, would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits. Oh yes. And also the healing of our oldest and deepest ache, our great longing to belong to be forever loved, to be chosen, to be wanted, to be embraced. So again, a pastoral word, people want to know when they read this text or hear this teaching, does this mean we won't know each other in heaven? Do we, are we somehow anonymous in heaven in the light of this teaching? It's a fair question. Um, and I understand where it comes from, but the answer is, of course we will. And I'll, I'll show you why. We will not know less there than we do here, for heaven's sake. Abraham is named because he will be who in heaven? He will be Abraham. Isaac and Jacob are named because they will be Isaac and Jacob in heaven. We will be known and loved in heaven as our glorified selves, but still ourselves. In ways that our hearts can only long for here, we will be truly known, known all the, all the way to the bottom, but loved all the way to the heavens. There will be a depth of love and oneness and delight in one another and in him that makes the most rapturous moment in the best marriage in the history of the world look like nothing by comparison. Again, a dewdrop compared to the river that is to come. That's Jesus' promise concerning the life that is to come. So you see, don't you, in the life to come, there will be love beyond marriage, not beneath marriage, but infinitely above and beyond it. It will encompass marriage, but it will be so very much more. And I want to show you this, and then we'll close in prayer. Don't miss this. When we're told that there will be no more weddings in the afterlife, it's not because there's no marriage in the afterlife. No, no, no. Every believer, whatever his or her marital status or experience in this life, will have his or her spouse in the life to come. You know where I'm going with this? There is, friends, there is no singleness. Technically speaking, there is no singleness as such in heaven, no widowed or divorced people as such in heaven, because we will be God's perfect bride, and he will be our bridegroom. Oh, yes, there will be marriage in heaven. But it will be on an order of magnitude that just is incalculably large, huge. And it changes everything when we come to understand this. His is the love we will most intensely experience forever and ever and ever. And we will experience it together, and it will eclipse even the strongest and best love we may have been privileged to know in this life. This is the image Paul gives us in Ephesians. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church so much that he gave his very life for her. It is that act, the death followed by the burial, followed by the resurrection of Jesus. That's why God can put his love on us and make us real and permanent because Jesus made us his bride by laying down his life for us. Jesus is our bridegroom, and he will meet us at the altar in the world of love that is to come. Whatever you experienced in this life. And if you live in the expectation of this, if you, not, if you go beyond seeing to being seized by the truth that lies in this exchange between Jesus and the Sadducees, it changes everything. It gives you the peace and poise, the hope and assurance you need to live in joy whatever is going on in this life. And you live long enough and um, you'll know a great deal of sorrow. You'll be able to meet it with peace and poise, hope and assurance, and even a deep inner joy, whatever is going on in this life, because of the life to come, the promised life to come. I think St. Teresa of Avila got it uh, said it best when she wrote, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth seem like one night in a bad boarding house. <laughs> if, you know, if you know and understand what it is that Jesus said to the Sadducees about the afterlife, you'll be able to face whatever comes in this life as you look forward to the life that is to come. Let's do that together in prayer. Would you bow your heads and Close your eyes for just a moment. And with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I am a pastor, so I have to ask you, do you know Christ? Do you know the Jesus who spoke these words to the Sadducees so long ago and proved their validity by his own death, burial, and resurrection? Do you know him? And have you entered into an eternally present, never-ending relationship with him that can only be described with personal possessive pronouns? I am his son. I am his daughter. He is my God. He is my father. He is my Lord. He is my friend. And if you have, if you have, do you see your destiny? Do you know that you will be met at the altar of the world of love that is to come? And if you do, then let the gospel fill your heart with joy. If you don't yet know these things, if, you, if you're not sure, the Bible says repent and believe. Receive the mercy and grace of the God who loves you. Now, Father, help us to see and be seized by these truths and seal them by your Spirit to our hearts so that whatever may come our way in this life, we may endure with peace and poise and hope and joy, and may it be so, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus, whose words amaze us. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.